Hello, welcome to the Therapy Thursday podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Yu, and every single Thursday, I learn lessons from my own therapy sessions and I share them with all of you. I'm so ready to go through and grow through so much with you. Let's go. I always try my absolute best to create a safe, inviting space to talk about all the things we never want to talk about, whether it's my own personal family trauma, my very bad string of breakups, my continuous IBS constipation struggle, or my period health. I'm diving into these conversations unapologetically. And that's why I'm so thankful to have a sponsor like DivaCup supporting our podcast. I ditched the disposable tampons and pads, and finally switched to the Diva Cup in January of 2020, and I have never looked back. Truly the best period decision ever. My Diva Cup is a reusable menstruation cup made from 100% medical-grade silicone. It's a durable, healthy, waste-free option for your period. Diva Cup is changing the way we talk about periods. They're so passionate about sustainability, equality, and fighting the stigma associated with menstruation. And I couldn't be more proud to have them as a sponsor on our first season. Head to the episode description to find out more about Diva Cup and follow along on Instagram at the Diva Cup. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Colleen. Hi. Oh, please. Oh, please. Okay, everyone. I told Dr. Colleen what our oh, please is, and I'm going to let her go first to share what she has an oh, please about today. Okay. My current biggest oh, please is <laughs> Noom. It's just one word, Noom, uh, because I feel like it is currently the diet that is hijacking anti-diet language and like such a blatant way and it's so it's like an app right it's a kind of like a diet app or a weight loss thing it's weight loss and dieting but they say like why should you live your life having to (laughs) chase weight loss and be on a diet when they're like and then there they are giving you red yellow and green foods giving you weight loss goals assigning you weight loss coaches like it just it makes me – and then they also say that they have psychologists who help them design it, which is like the final oh, please for me because I'm like, Ugh. which psychologists? What do you mean they help design it? There's no way like all of this is – there's just – I see a lot of problems here and I'm rolling my eyes at them daily. <laughs> <laughs> that is such an oh, please. Oh, you're going to roll your eyes, I think, at this because luckily I can see you so I can watch your reaction. When I was, I'm single now, have been for a long, long time, but there was this guy that I was dating. And one time I was packing up a bunch of snacks for us to go on like a picnic. And I texted him and I said, Hey, do you want me to bring you a fruit? Like I'm bringing grapes because I love grapes. And he goes, No, I'm cutting back on sugar. Oh my God. <laughs> what, what do you grapes. mean? Oh, that's painful. <laughs> and I think the biggest. I roll for me when I hear that is it's often someone who will choose when they want to cut certain things out. Like you like to drink, you're going to be eating all this other stuff, but it's, but it's the sugar in fruit that you're worried about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so like <laughs> nonsensical and ridiculous. Oh man. And I remember too, I read when I was younger that bananas had so much sugar in them. So I love bananas. But when I was in the height of being obsessed with counting macros and things, I would only eat a half a banana. I mean, come on, girl. Yes. 
I've just, there's so many people that I feel like I work with now to be like, eat, no one, I don't know of any human who's like a half a banana. It's like, we want the whole banana because, you know, like I just, let's have the whole banana. Like there's nothing wrong with them and they're tasty. Like just have the whole banana. And it's also going to brown and it's also tastes so much better with almond butter. Anyways, thank you for doing the old please with us. And we're going to get to talking about all things therapy, eating disorder, relationship with food and body right now. Thank you so much for being here on the Therapy Thursday podcast. I am so excited to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to be here. So thank you for having me. Oh, I am blessed to have you on because I feel like you have such an incredible way of every single time I read one of your posts, I feel like I'm reading my own thoughts as a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, 20-year-old, and I'm 27. Do you ever feel like that's kind of what you're trying to do when you post about relationship with food, body, all these things? Yes, that's (laughs) exactly like if I could put it into words, that's exactly how I would say it. I just hope that it leaves people feeling seen and heard at, you know, across the age spectrum and that it combines kind of like a friendship vibe with a clinical vibe. So that is music to my ears. Thank you. Oh, well, you do it also in a way that makes me laugh. You are so (laughs) funny too. And I feel like it's so inspirational to see you doing what you do because you also went through all the schooling of it. And I just want to give you a proper intro because you were such a badass and have put in so much work to do what you do now. So you are Dr. Colleen Reichman, the founder of Therapy for Eating Disorders and Body Image. You are a licensed clinical psychologist in Philadelphia, and you really have absolutely thrived as an eating disorder specialist. And the coolest part of this year was that you authored a book the inside scoop on eating disorder and everyone. If you have not seen her book, it is so cute. The cover is ice cream scoops, hence inside scoop. And I love this book. Thank you so much for sending me a copy. You are so sweet. The best part about it is that you are actually someone who's been through so much of that. Mm -hmm. Which is, yeah, that's the kind of the premise for the book was not to, and I wrote it with my with a co-author, Jen Rowland, who's another therapist in the field who also has recovered from an eating disorder. And we were kind of like, how can we make a book that feels, I don't, I wouldn't say fun to read because it's about recovering from an eating disorder, but it's <laughs> like easy yeah. to get through. You know what I mean? And it also, it again, combines research, clinical tools and ideas, but also a little bit of like personal narrative sprinkled throughout because that's where we're coming from with a lot of it. And that is really that essential piece for a lot of people who struggle with body image, eating disorders, is that I remember when I was younger, I felt if you didn't fully understand me, I'm not going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Do I think that's... have that from clients? I'm st- <laughs> yes. Adolescent. I swear that adolescents feel that way very str- – and adults too, of course, but there is something about being an adolescent – I don't know. I kind of feel like at that age, you really are craving to feel heard and like, and adults don't hear you often anyway. So you're probably skeptical of therapists or people anyway already. And then there's also this like added layer of, well, how could you understand? Like, I've definitely had adolescents say that to me before. Like, you're perfect. (sighs) How could you understand? You're perfect. (laughs) Definitely. 
<laughs> I've definitely said that to my therapist who I've been seeing for six years. I remember when I first started seeing her, I didn't know anything about talking to people about my feelings or listening to any feedback. So I really also had a moment of really idolizing her. And I'm mm-hmm. so curious to know, I want to ask so much about what your work is with your clients, but bringing it back to what when you were younger, did you feel like one day you would ever do things like this? And from your personal experiences when you were younger, inspired you to maybe get to this place of making this your life's work for now? Um, when I was younger, I, which I wrote about a little bit in the book, I was like the person who made fun of therapists and therapy. And I was, I like to call myself a monster. Like I was very mean. It was mostly coming from a place of like trying to protect myself and hold on to the eating disorder and everything. But I never would have thought that I would then recover and go on to be a therapist. I I thought therapy was a joke and I thought it was very like robotic and people weren't, I just didn't, I felt like it was something I had to do. So it was um, definitely a shift to then you know, when I got to graduate school, I still thought I was just going to be a researcher, not a clinician. And then when I got into the, I just kind of like happened to start doing the work and doing practicums with college students struggling with body image. And once I started feeling like I was strong in recovery, I felt like the work just kind of clicked. Mm. And I had like an empathy chip for this type of struggle that was really helpful to use. So it just kind of like took off from there. Oh, I feel that so much because I also come from an academic research background. That was what I studied in college. That's what I pursued being a research coordinator. And I remember uh, talking to my therapist so much. So I want, I actually did apply and was going to start an MSW program to become a therapist, but then COVID had hit. And I just was so excited to do school and actually meet people and build those relationships. The timing kind of didn't work out, but I know I'm going to do that in the future. Mm -hmm. And when I heard you say too, I'm so fascinated by how you are able to shift into kind of being more analytical to then, I mean, therapy work and being a therapist is all about, like you said, that empathy chip really coming in super strong. And I just love what you said about how until you were deep enough in your own recovery to be able to do that, that's what I was always worried about. So I would say to my therapist, I don't think I'd be able to hold space for anyone and I think I'd be triggered by people. How did you, I'm sure it's still like a daily thing for you when you're working with people, but how did that feel mustering the courage to really go, I can do it? Um, I know that there are therapists in the field who actively struggle with eating disorders and are able to provide really solid therapy and work with people with eating disorders. Like I know it's possible. For me, it wouldn't have been, I just wasn't, the eating disorder was too, uh, I, that wouldn't have worked for me. I was just really not there and able, like you said, to hold space for anyone when I was deep in it. So I think it was kind of like, you know how when you get into recovery, you think like, this is as good as it's going gonna to get and like, I can do this now. And then like two years later, you're like, I can't believe I thought that was as good. I was still, you know, so wrapped up in it. I, this is so much better. I think like as I went along those stages, it just became more and more clear that I could do the work and my recovery kept going. And at some point, I realized I'm not triggered like at all. I just don't feel like that when I'm, I don't 
And I think if I did feel really triggered often, I don't know if I could sustain this type of work. Like I'm, I just feel for people who feel that way. And I also think other people can handle that, but I just, I don't feel triggered. And I think that that's really helpful for me and the work. Oh, a hundred percent. I think that's so amazing. And the reason why I think, and I'm sure you know why you're able to not get so triggered is because you've put so much work into your own therapy. You know, every therapist has a therapist. Yes. Every therapist is working on themselves while helping you. And I'm curious to know when someone comes to you like a new client, are they coming to you mostly for the body image, eating disorder, relationship with food stuff? I think most of the time, just because of how I market the practice and everything, that's what gets people through the door. But after, at some point, it's almost always like we begin working on trauma or underlying self-esteem, self-worth, depression. You know, there's just so many, it's almost always very layered and multifaceted. So that's almost always what gets people into the door, but then there's so much stuff under the iceberg that we then get into trauma being one of the main things I would say. Oh, always. I remember anytime I'd say, I really need to figure this binge eating out. Let's talk about it for the next 50 minutes. She goes, so tell me about your dad. Like what's going on? What was like that when you're five, 10? And I looked at her and I said, are you kidding me? (laughs) Because I didn't understand just like what you're saying. It's so it's so important that we allow ourselves to really dig deep and peel all these layers that really do contribute to what I see is all these struggles we have are symptoms of deeper things, kind of like what you're saying. What is something that you find is so often said by a client if you try to get them to dig deeper? Because I'm sure it's a response kind of like mine. I feel like there's uh, like um, a common response when you talk about like when you try to get into families that's like I'm good with the family stuff or like I don't like we or my family's great you know which is so understandable because people feel that like protective it's almost like too painful to go there a lot of the time so people are protective and they also feel guilty for like processing anything about these people who they also love so there's a lot of Uh, like understandable resistance to that. And I totally empathize and have definitely been there myself. And I think the more we resist talking about something and the more we don't want to, oftentimes like that is a signal that it would be really helpful to go there at some point. Oh, that's so true. Right. When you said when you have such a wall built up about something, it probably means we should start looking past it. And it is really the defensive part about I don't want to dismantle my entire existence by letting you in for me to even have to reflect on my family stuff. Mm -hmm. I know that was the worst, absolutely terrifying to me. And I guess another question This is such a, because I know I hid so much, right? When I was struggling with my eating disorder, what is something that a client typically really wants to hide from you? And you are probably so good at digging so kindly and and patiently. What is one of those things that is is often so easily hidden? And and we really try to keep that wall up from, you know, our therapists like you. Yeah, I would definitely say like when it comes to, I guess, more of, the basic eating disorder stuff, 
people are much more likely to want to hide binging for sure, purging, things like chewing and spitting, like let like more stigmatized behaviors. Obviously, people are less likely to be open about them than like restriction, which is so unfortunate, but again, so understandable. So I think that's why I do think it's important to see an eating disorder specialist if you can, because it's important to see someone who will make sure to go there if you won't and ask like, is there chewing, you know, kind of venture there and show you like, I'm not afraid to, and you don't have to be afraid to either, you know, say any of this stuff. And it's all like grist for our therapy mill right now. So definitely those behaviors. And then, you know, anything trauma, I think, and and sexual trauma specifically and childhood sexual trauma, I do think there's this really strong urge to protect that and tuck that away and not come out and just talk about that at first. So I think that's something that's maybe even more complicated than asking about behaviors because I think it takes, you know, you have to be thoughtful and make sure you're, you know, really caring with the person about um, what it's going to feel like for them if you do ask directly. And so that is something that I think people want to hide a lot and it does take some relationship building to get there sometimes. I really appreciate you bringing up this stuff about sexual trauma because that's not something I ever identified myself with. And actually, my therapist brought it up to me only this year. And I had had a seven-year-long relationship that was super toxic, super codependent. And I didn't realize that a lot of times in that relationship, there was a lot of taking advantage when it came to my body. And I'd already been so good at dissociating from my body when it came to an eating disorder. And I wonder, how do you end up bringing up that type of conversation with clients? I mean, do you ever see that they mention it or do you sense it in a way? Um, I definitely think it varies from person to person. Um, And I would say it also varies if the person's been in therapy or not before. Like oftentimes Mm. that is a change factor in people's comfort levels. But I think a lot of times asking directly and making sure you're like, you, I don't think pushing when it comes to trauma is ever super helpful. Like this, it, obviously it needs to feel safe or what's, you know, what's the point, but making sure you're always like, I'm here to go there if that would be helpful. You know, like I'm not mm-hmm. going to shy away from this conversation. I think that's what we do in society, like with our friends a lot. It's kind of mm-hmm. like we give each other vibes like, ah, like that makes me uncomfortable. So let's not talk about yes. it. So I think as a therapist, the job is to be like, I'm not uncomfortable with that. And I also totally get if you don't want to talk about it, but here is like, I'm, you know, ready to ask the questions and ready to receive and just make it very known that all of your story will be held and honored if you're wanting to go there. Yeah. And I feel like a big part of recovery for me has been with my own therapist. She's really pushed me to do a lot of body work, which I hate the most, which means not completely cutting my head off from the rest of my body. And I wonder throughout your journey, even before being a therapist, what was it like for you to realize you wanted to work on that relationship with yourself? Because I'm still trying to learn some of the practices and I am, I'm not good at it yet. Well, I'm also, I feel like with body work, it's still a work in progress for me personally. I think that's been the longest standing 
uncomfortable element of therapy and just healing and everything. I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm by no means great at it. So I really empathize and I, but I like wildly different than where I was. I like Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, for example, uh, a GYN, I had a visit with a gynecologist who talked about doing breast exams and like the importance of that. And I remember just thinking in my head, like, well, I won't be, then (laughs) I guess I'll just, I'll end up you know, getting it, like getting cancer. Yeah. Cause I'm not going to do that. And then realizing like, that's a problem. You know, you have to be able to, there are reasons why it's important to work on like touching your own body or just being in your body and not trying to totally disconnect. So I had to do years of practice and exposures and still kind of work on it, you know, from time to time. Yeah. What do those exposures look like? Can you walk me through maybe one that would feel feasible and not so intimidating? Sure. So one that I did often, and I also have a lot of clients who do this as well, is a lot of people have discomfort when it comes to like their stomach area. So um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty common. So I would do an exposure where I would lay on like the bed or something and just put my hand on my stomach and try to be present with just the rising and falling and noticing like what my stomach felt like, what my hand felt like on my stomach, and then use um, cloud thoughts to kind of, or the, what's, it's a cloud thought exercise it's called, where you try to watch the thoughts, the judgments and the thoughts float in and see if you can observe them and then just kind of like release them and keep your hand there and keep breathing through it. And not going to lie. It's like pretty, it was pretty terrible at first, but like after a while now I can obviously do that with no problem. And I have so many clients that also like make great headway with, with a lot of effort and practice. Yeah. I mean, that's something that especially this year, my therapist, I, for the first time opened up to her a lot about all of my constipation issues. I have severe IBS constipation. I've always had uh, gastro reflux diseases. And it's so wild to me that I have always hidden it from her. And it's honestly because I felt so guilty for a lot of my own past behaviors creating these problems. I mean, I know that it's separate. I know that it's a lot of physical stuff. But do you ever feel like a lot of your struggles have come from a place of your, it's your fault. And when clients bring that to you, how do you get them out of that shame spiral? Yeah. I I mean, I so appreciate you talking. That's something I've noticed about your account, like a lot, how much I appreciate you talking about openly about the IBS struggles, because I do think it's really common and real. If you've had an eating disorder for, you know, a significant period of time, you have lasting physical impact, you know, a lot of times, whether that is GI issues or um, I was just talking with a friend about chronic dental issues that, Mm. you know, I'm 10 years out of the eating disorder and I still, every time I go to the dentist, it's a new, like, you need a new tooth here, your enamel's totally worn away here, uh, crown here, and it's easy to feel like a lot of shame about that and to get down on yourself, like, I did this to myself. Yeah. but to that, I think for myself, for friends, for clients, it's important to think about like, well, you know, see if you can go back to when you were in that place, sit with that feeling for a second. Was that, did that feel like a choice? Like all the purging, for example, <laughs> did that feel like, I don't, I don't think it feels like that in the moment. And I don't think it really was, it was kind of like survival. So 
going back to also reminding yourself, like you were surviving something and you did survive. And so this is not the result of you like being bad or having a behavioral issue. It was what you had to do to kind of survive. Oh, so much. And I feel like every single coping mechanism I tried and got so addicted to was me trying to find some way to feel in control. But the problem was I kept trying to then get in control of the coping mechanisms. And it just Mm -hmm. became this cycle of me trying to make it work for me. So whether I was binging from 10 to 22, I mean, there was not a day that went by that I didn't do it. That's my alarm. Um, There was not... I would binge every single night from the age of 10 to 22. And I always caught myself trying to figure out a way to make it work. I didn't want to let go of it. There was no way that you could get me to stop doing it. And I remember in the first year of seeing my therapist, I said to her, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I hate what I'm doing. I'm struggling so much. I hate myself. I'm angry. I want to change. But I'm looking at you right now and telling you I don't want to change. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have clients say that? And 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 what do you do? I mean, I I remember feeling great about the fact that I'm telling the truth, but hopeless. Yes, that's a really common conversation. It's part <laughs> of what I do think makes eating disorder work a little bit unique. In that, like, I have friends who are therapists that primarily work with depression, where people are like, mm-hmm. most clients are like, "Oh my god, this is awful! Like, please help me. I'll do anything." And then. That's kind of like the exception, not the rule when it comes to some people are struggling with eating disorders because they are survival mechanisms and they are really helpful in the moment. Like you would not have been binging from 10 to 22 if that wasn't incredibly helpful <laughs> in various ways. So it's yes. like, that's important, I think, to just acknowledge at first. Like, yeah. no, I get it. This is, I get why you wouldn't want to give this up. This has been so helpful or helpful. And there's, you know, there's actually, um, what is it? Have you heard of eating the light of the moon? Oh my goodness. Yes. It's my thing. See, this is, you get it. My therapist recommended it to me. I love it. Can you tell everyone ex- kind of like what it is and why you as therapists love recommending it to eating disorder people? <laughs> yeah, it's um. so Dr. Anita Johnston is an eating disorder. She's just a specialist in the field. I think she has a practice in Hawaii. I'm not mistaken. She's so cool. She is really cool. And she's (laughs) so, like, she has this book filled with metaphors about food and our relationship with our body. And it's done in this storytelling, like, totally different way than any other book you've seen. And there's a story in there that I love. And I, oh my gosh, wait, which one? Which one? The river and the lava. Me too. Oh my God. So good. Okay, please speak it to us. It's so good and juicy. It, it, I feel like I'm not going to do it justice, but basically she tells the story of how you're stuck in this raging river and you feel like worried for your life. So you grab onto this log and like hold on for dear life as the storm goes on. And then eventually like the storm kind of clears and the water quiets and you notice like your family and friends on the other side of the bank and they're like, let go of the log. You can swim back now. It's okay. But you're like this log saved me. I can't let go of it now. So you're like clinging to the log and you're just unsure why you're doing it, but you feel like you can't let go, even though they're telling you you can and it's safe. And it's just a great metaphor for like why people don't want to let go of the eating disorder right away. Like it's, it's a lot of people's like logs, like it helped you get through that storm. 
Oh, I have chills because I'm picturing my therapist saying that also for the first time to me six years ago. And you saying it now, I'm just having this moment of that blew my brains out because that metaphor helps you see it for truly what it is, removing the judgment and removing yourself and removing every single negative dissociation you have on it because the, that is the truth. It's mm-hmm. you truly cannot imagine being able to exist without something that is truly keeping you afloat. And we often will see these behaviors like binging, restricting, everything is tanking you, bringing you down. Mm -hmm. But I swear I would have been much further underground without something to preoccupy me. Right. Yeah. It takes up so much brain space and people who don't have that cannot understand how like valuable that is. Like it occupies everything, like all of your thoughts. And that's so helpful when you're stuck in trauma or you're trying to forget about trauma or you're just going through, you know, a difficult time in your life, whatever the storm is, it's having your brain space occupied is like, that is, yeah, that helps you survive. Oh, it totally is. And because you experienced these struggles also just as a kid and as an adolescent, And then you became a therapist. I'm just so amazed and inspired by you because I ended up applying to do my MSW and it was at the start of COVID when I was going to start and I decided to defer because I really, I've always struggled too with making friends. That's probably a big symptom of people with eating disorders is that Mm -hmm. you're not wanting, it allows you to not socialize. You're busy. You're busy doing all these things at home. You're busy in your head. You don't have time to get to know people. So now that I'm older, anytime I have a chance, I want to really be in that moment. But what I'm saying about you being a therapist is I think I became so interested and wanted to learn so much about myself is because this is something that my family says to me all the time and it really just irks me to the core. It's nice, but they'll say, you know, Kelly, I'm just, I'm just so glad. I'm so proud of you for doing therapy. I'm, I'm so glad you do it. And I just look at them and go, but like, do you know why I do it? Because uh, I'm looking at it, <laughs> you know? And um, because you're a therapist, I wonder, do you come from a family that was like, yeah, therapy, and that's why you got start doing it? Or you did it because no one was providing that to you? Um, I definitely come from a family of people who don't really go to therapy themselves either. So that resonates. Um, but my dad, especially, he's like a retired FBI agent. There's just, wait, whoa. Yeah. He's like, not of the, the people that would yeah, ever we're seek not a doing- therapist. Oh, like man. he's, he's, yeah. So he, um, like it's outside of his even range. He, couldn't even understand like why but I know when I was like in the eating disorder there was a lot of like well you have to go to therapy like there it was like a oh all of a really sudden, yeah it was like a this is it like you have to and even though it was nobody else like goes to therapy and we're not like a therapy family but it was like a <laughs> no you have to like you have to get help and then you know it's just it does I feel that same like tension when I feel like other people aren't also like I don't know, putting in the work and also trying therapy. If you've seen it, it saved my life. You talk about it. So what about, right. you know, you trying it? Like it could be good for all of us. The therapist said it was a family illness. So why don't we all try? But they're just, you can't make someone open to therapy. So it's oh, tough. I, 
I can't imagine. Have you ever felt like you had to be your family's therapist, not even as a therapist, just when you were younger? Because I assume you've always been on the empathic side and very intuitive. I mean, anyone with disordered behaviors is typically very, very sensitive, intuitive. And that's why you kind of turn inward to deal with a lot of these things silently Mm -hmm. and painfully. Yeah. And my family, I would say it was like less their therapist and more of they, there was this big narrative of how oversensitive I was. And like, that was like constantly brought up and it was like this huge issue. And so I more and more, like you said, turned inward and just away from them. I'm also like the middle child. Um, Mm -hmm. My mom, you know, there's relationship dynamics that made me feel kind of like left out. So I think it was even less about me playing their therapist and more about me just saying like, I'll take care of me then. Like I am good to go. Like I am going to be a very independent person. And um, that definitely contributed to issues in the end. Well, and you did that, Miss Independent. But isn't it so (laughs) fascinating to see how it always does come from someone who's felt sad and like an other. I mean, I relate so much to what you said about being kind of that black sheep of the family mm-hmm. and something that I always had said to me was, do we really have to analyze this? <sighs> do you mean, you mean me just asking you like, what's up? You mean me just being like, wonder why we have this weird tension all the time. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so something with like the people that are like, I'm going to ask the question and there's going to be something like, I'm not going to let something like crazy going on in the corner without saying like, what's going on in the corner? And that's the family member that everyone's like, what's wrong with her? Like, why can't she just let it go? And yeah, that is so like relatable. (laughs) I love that we now can live a life, especially with you doing what you do. It validates that this is not something that needs to be like pushed away. It's actually such a superpower and it serves you to be able to embrace it, not just you being able to use it to help others, just for yourself. I mean, I think one of the biggest steps in both of our healing must have been just when we decided that a lot of parts of us that we really questioned and really pushed down was everything that made us so beautifully special. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that like inquisitive nature and the like the sensitivity and the wanting to ask questions and wanting to analyze like that is, and that's like a gift. That's not everybody. So I, you know, I think that people who don't understand it can end up saying it's a problem, but it really is a gift. Do you find yourself saying that to clients like, oh, I, you're just so observant or you're just so able to pick up on these things? Because when I first heard that from my therapist, no one had ever framed it to me in a nice way like that. Yeah. I think that's so common with the people that I work with. And maybe just like, maybe it's, it's just a common theme of people who have struggled with eating disorders is this like incredibly like observant mind and like, I don't know, strong like intuition and ability to like analyze and then also like internally analyze. And it's definitely something that I notice. And it, it again, it's like an Achilles heel, like it can be such a gift and then it can, you know, get us in trouble from time to time. It can be harder to live like that. So it's, it's about like acknowledging both sides and then working to say like, how can I foster the gift part? Like, how can I help it help me, you know? 
Yeah, that's a really good point because I have had so many moments where I'll even say jokingly to all my friends constantly, it's like, oh, I wish I didn't care. I wish I wasn't like this. I feel so silly or dumb. I mean, I even had a friend today who was saying, I know it's dumb to feel sad. And it's mm-hmm. such a, even though you and I clearly know that's not true, how do you, when someone says that to you like a client, just that sentiment, how do we get someone to feel that feeling without totally drowning? Kind of like what you said, you know, you find a balance in the way of feeling those things, but not letting it take over you. It's a fine line. It is. And someone, it might have been a therapist or someone once said to me that you want your emotions like children in your car. Like you don't want them like at the steering wheel driving the car out of control, but you can't Mm. be like stuffing them in the trunk. Like they have to be (laughs) safe in the car with you. So I think maybe it was Glennon Doyle or someone had a quote about like, I love her. Yeah. She's, I mean, there's so many like great metaphors she has in quotes, but I think she talks about emotions as traveling professors and like one comes to your house and instead of slamming the door in its face, you're like, okay, come in you know, like, what do you have to teach me today? And then, but you don't want to like invite the professor to stay the night at some point, like you listen to the lessons and then you can be like, okay, (laughs) like it's time to see yourself out, which obviously that's a very beautiful way of saying it. And it's a lot messier, but I think that approach is good. Oh, I think that's amazing. Hi, everyone. I know for me, sustainability can be so overwhelming, and I don't talk about this as often because I'm working on it in my everyday life, but sometimes I just don't know where to start. Like, yes, hello, of course I want to do my part for Mother Nature. Oh, Kelly, so true. I have found my own journey to be more eco-conscious is exactly what you just said. It's through my everyday actions, and that has been the easiest step for me. So recently, I actually bought a water filter for my fridge to replace all those gross plastic bottles. And this one might kind of sound random, but I removed all the paper napkins from my kitchen. So it's just the little things for me right now. Oh my gosh, Danny, that's exactly it for me, my friend. My friend Nathan came to visit me for a couple days and he was blown away by the fact that I had no napkins, no paper towels, or even tissues. And that's, okay, here's the thing. It's because my mom taught me to use paper towel to blow my nose as a kid and that just really stuck with me. And since switching from tampons and pads to my reusable Diva Cup in January 2020, I've been practicing sustainability down there. Danny, isn't that wild? Yeah, it is wild. And because it's made from 100% medical grade silicone, it's a healthy and durable option every month. And beyond being reusable, they have launched a pretty incredible recycling program with TerraCycle. So through Diva Recycles, Diva Cup users are actually able to fully recycle their Diva Cups and Diva Wipes packaging. So having a reusable, sustainable option for your period every month can make you feel so much better about your sustainability goals. Ooh, we love to hear it and we love to see that action. If you are looking to make a sustainable shift for your period, head to the episode description to read more about Diva Recycles and why using a Diva Cup may be the perfect solution for your menstrual cycle. Be sure to follow along with at the Diva Cup on Instagram to hear more sustainability and menstrual equity news. I I just had to do this. I pulled up some of my absolutely top favorite posts that you have posted that just make me go, oh, she's talking to me. Oh, <laughs> really should have thought about that. And a lot of these are specifically just about food. And I really want to get to a deeper conversation talking about relationship with food because sometimes I find for me, 
I think I've moved past it a lot where sometimes I find it though, even if I've gone past it, I get triggered in talking about it. And that's why I really love your account. So can I read some of them to you? Yeah. And we'll talk about it. Yes. Great. Okay. This is so real. This you posted on March 11th. You don't have to spend this morning waiting as long as possible to eat. Oh, man. <laughs> I still do that for sure. Yeah. And I really try not to, though. Most of the times I don't. What really pushed you to write this? I mean, obviously, you know, okay, someone's feeling this way, someone's doing that. But what else do you have to really push you to say things like that that people need to hear and are doing right now? Um, I think that's just more of like an insidious behavior that and it's not even I've noticed it's not even um, specific to people with like diagnosed eating disorders. I think a lot of times just in our culture and like diet culture and stuff, there is an emphasis on like waiting as long as possible and that that's makes people feel good or feel people feel especially when they're like too busy to eat. Like I was too busy to eat breakfast. There's like bragging that goes on about it. So I think it's important to kind of call out and address like for everyone and also say like, I know it feels like it, that it just, you have to, like you just really feels like it has to, but feelings aren't facts and you can, there is like another way. Like, and if you have it in you today to like try the other path, it's there and available for you. And it does end up long-term feeling better to just feel your body in the morning and have like a clear mind to go into the day with. Oh, and the bragging part that you mentioned is genuinely so true. And when I was 10, diet culture was such a big thing. I had this one friend and her sister who were always dieting. We were 11 and 12. They were, you're older than me, right? So I'm 10. And this is what they said to me that I believed for the next six years. You know, they said, she said to me, do you know that when you're hungry, you're burning fat? I believed it, Colleen, for for so long because they told me I'd never heard any. I was like, oh, that's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. It's so like enticing too to a 10-year-old to hear. Yes. Another another one that I love that you wrote says, gentle reminder, iced coffee isn't breakfast. This is disordered (laughs) behavior. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've definitely gone many times in my life where you try to do, okay, well, if I have almond milk in it and it's sweet, it can trick me. What Mm -hmm. is this feeling that we always have that we want to trick ourselves? Yeah. It's like, so again, it's something so ingrained in our culture, like figuring out this appetite problem and like (laughs) tricking your appetite with like X, Y, and Z. And we all, like so many people get caught up in it. None of it actually works. Like it all just backfires in all these various ways. And it's sad that like, This world has told people, instead of trusting your body and yourself, you have to find ways to trick it. Like that's, that's sad and it's like upsetting. And it's something that I think is important for us all, like eating disorder or not, to just be pushing back on because I don't like, we don't need to, you should see my one-year-old. Like he's really good at when he was born. I noticed like he can't do anything. He can't even lift his head up, but he can tell me when he's hungry and then he stops when he's full. Like the vast majority of humans are born with this like really innate ability to eat and then um, stop. And it's everything else that gets in the way of that, you know, in the world and these messages. So 
pushing back and trying to unlearn them is so important. Yeah, because honestly, the the field in your mind when you picture food and then yourself, you you've created a game, I think. And it's so wild when I think about, you know, your your child just being one, they they don't care about a game. They're simply running off of natural cues. And the best thing that my therapist ever said to me, you know, when I felt really guilty about needing to eat and feel full before I went to bed, unfortunately that would push me into binge eating. But she mm-hmm. said, you know, what do babies need before they go to bed? What do they do? Mm-hmm. They need to have a full belly and then they pass out. It's true. It's like it is the kryptonite for sleep. Like you <laughs> really see it when you have a baby that like, oh my gosh, this is what we want. Like we want to feel full and like nourished and safe. I think it helps babies feel safe mm-hmm. to then be able to like close their eyes and and sleep. Like that is how humans are wired. And a big struggle that I always had, though, and that's why I love this next post that you wrote was if I felt really full before I went to bed that next morning, I would do this. I'm reading your post. It says, if you're looking for a sign to forgo that punishing early morning treadmill (laughs) slash Stairmaster slash elliptical workout, let this be it. Oh, my God. The overexercising, especially as a purging mechanism. So, so true to my journey because I was obsessed with fitness too. And I'm sure you see that in a lot of your clients. Yeah. And that post specifically, I remember thinking as I typed it, like, this is what I needed to see. I needed to see this. Like, hopefully someone has this as like a sign because I like desperately needed the alternative message to fitness culture. And for someone to be like, even like quite simply, like, you don't have to get up. And like kill yourself at the gym at 4.30 a.m. to be like lovable. Like you are, this is not what you have to do. Like you are, there is, again, there's a different, there's an alternative option. and It's going to suck when you try it. It's going to take like a lot of practice. But breathing through that discomfort and that urge to go like essentially, yeah, purge through exercise is Mm -hmm. um, essential to breaking that cycle. Yeah, because engaging in that cycle means giving in to the compensatory behavior cycle is life is so transactional. If I eat, I need to work out. If I work out, then I can eat. And it becomes just also a new game and like a cycle. I love this next post. It's a lot of mornings are very tough for body image, food relationship stuff. And this one slaps the face. Colleen writes, eating disorder thought, my genes... And then this is so funny because you typed it during the pandemic. Pandemic edit, sweatpants, feel tighter <laughs> this morning. I'm going to restrict all day as a response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So common. It is because what does that feel like? When your pants are tight, you feel like I've messed up. Mm-hmm. And it's just like so automatic. Like it's uncomfortable. You feel bad in your body and you're just like, well, this is a problem. Like it's your brains like quickly goes to that pathway of like problem and you know how to fix it. And it's just so automatic. And you're really going into that day with like, okay, then I need a plan to not mess up. And this next post that you you wrote, I'm sorry, this is so annoying. I'm just fangirling over all your posts, but they're so important (laughs) the way you say them. Um, You wrote eating disorder thought. I'm not going to eat any sweets throughout the day because I want to have dessert tonight. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It's the saving. It's the I don't deserve until. And honestly, did you ever think this while you were writing it? It's 
I'm afraid that if I start now, I won't be able to stop and then I won't be allowed to have it later. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's so – and it's such a like mental gymnastics you have to do about like I wanted to – and also there's – I've also heard um, like I, if I have it now – Maybe then when I have like I'll ruin it and then it won't taste as good later. Ooh, like I'm that's saving so true. up, yeah. And it's like it's all it all comes from like starvation and deprivation that the brain does these wild things with like, well, let me play this like chess game of how to make it so it's like the best later and that I don't have too much of it now and it's not ruined and it's just so hard to like sit with. Well, and a big part of that for me and my experience was I put food on such a high pedestal as if it was the treat of my day, the only thing that made living today worth it, the pleasure of my existence being totally shitty for most of the day. So this is what I deserve. And I feel like you pushing it so high into a godlike state is what makes the gorging happen too. Yeah. And it's just feel – yeah, and you get into the place where then it's like – you just feel out of control around it because it is so pedestalized. And so, and then you also are like deprived, your brain's deprived. So there are certain foods that I still think about that that was just like, I've at the beginning of recovery, I was like, well, I'll never be able to have that food because it just, this is what happens when I have it no matter what, like even if I'm not restricting and it's, it takes like a while to decouple those foods from that behavior. Oh, completely. That exact – what you said. Can you say that again? It was, I can't have that because you know what happens. You said it just so perfectly. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to butcher well, it. No, no, no. You don't have to. But I just – that sentiment is so true. And I feel like that's what causes us to, to do a lot of like diet hacks on things that we just want to eat. Mm-hmm. And you did the funny <laughs> – this is one of the funniest posts you've ever written. You just make me laugh. Your post says, Psst, like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm whispering to you. It's okay to eat brownies that are not made from sweet potatoes or black beans. Yes. So true. I needed to hear that too. That was one that I needed like years ago. Like, it's going to be like, put down the can of black beans. Stop saying you like it better. It's really okay. Just have the brownies. Like, this is what leads to binging, you know? Oh, gosh, Colleen, I remember there was this one person who made these chickpea cookies, the most famous things on Instagram. <laughs> and I every time I made them, I tried to manipulate myself so hard into thinking they tasted good. And they were disgusting. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, you so can't painful. put you can't put protein powder and chickpeas together just because it looks like the shape of a circle. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same. I saw someone posted something really funny, a dietitian like a year ago that cracked me up that was like, if you want a cookie, just have the cookie. Don't have a sweet potato baked with like maple syrup <laughs> drizzled on top. Like, and I was like, that is what we're all doing. Like that is, we're do- trying to find these like wild hacks that just don't, because we're not like, it's not the same. Well, it goes back to what you said is we want to engage in this mental gymnastics because it gives us a sense of I'm not messing up. I'm in control. This is important to me. And that's an identity thing. It's like you're not even doing these consciously. You're not even trying to move towards the cookie because you don't want to feel like you're letting down this guard. It's 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 a sense of pride that I always felt by choosing to not quote unquote mess up. Mm-hmm. And it's like the ironic thing is it's that like 
trying to not mess up and then staying away from like the actual thing that you want that leads us to be so obsessed with the actual thing like which is I noticed this is another thing I noticed with Ezra my one-year-old like I oftentimes I'll put cookies on his plate like with his dinner like Mm -hmm. I put I put it all there and he's because he knows they're there some of the time he has them first and he does like sweets like he like a lot of times seems to just prefer them because I think that's some of us love we'd get along so well he and I yeah (laughs) that's my mom says she's like you take after my uh, you know take after Grammy but sometimes he won't because he like knows they're there and his mind isn't yet wired to be like you might not get them like you might not see Mm -hmm. them again so he's his mind is kind of like I really do like these but also like this is a new interesting food and like I know I'll have them whenever so we uh like if we gave ourselves that chance we would be so much less obsessed with these pedestalized foods. I love that you do that with your son. That is so amazing. And that's something that I noticed recently too, is I always, every single night I have a fear of overeating, right? You know, you if you've had binge eating your whole life, you have such a paranoia, no matter what, even if you know that it would be okay. Mm-hmm. And for the last few nights, I noticed if I put a few more like crackers or cookies, I could actually leave them in the bowl. And that's crazy to me. Mm-hmm. That is. It's such a – have you ever, like, when you were in the binging or, like, uh-huh. when you were struggling with it, gone out to dinner or with people and you've been like, how do they talk and, like, not notice that appetizer on the table? Oh, like, God, yeah. <laughs> I, like, for the longest time I was like, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're just, like, talking right now and you're, like, not noticing this and, like, this is – how are you not thinking about this until you eat it? Like, right. Like I'm looking at your eyes, but honestly, I'm looking at the table. Like I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm nodding my head and talking, but I'm literally eyeing the bread over here. Mm-hmm. And I would, I honestly really didn't even like eating with people because food was such a ritual for me. It felt mm-hmm. so sacred that I almost felt, I almost felt like they were robbing me yeah. of my religion. <laughs> yes. I totally relate right? to that. And you're like, You're like, it's just, yeah, that's a very, I feel, I relate to that a lot. It's like, don't talk to me. I'm eating. Mm -hmm. But the last one that it hit me the most, you wrote this and said, eating disorder thought. Ugh, I feel way too full. I can't handle this feeling. I need to use a behavior. God. I mean, did you just hit us in the face with a nail or what? (laughs) It is so, like human and relatable that like I cannot handle this like can't do it and the feeling of fullness I think for me I register it as now I can't move and I think a lot of people including myself really have associated being empty and light as permission to be more existing in the world Mm -hmm. and if I can just close what we're talking about all this with what is an affirmation, Colleen, that you can give to someone that is really feels unable to live a full life with a full stomach? I mean, hmm. it's so hard. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think something that helped me was because the feeling of fullness for years, I'm saying, I'm telling you, like years felt intolerable. So reminding myself, like, I don't like this feeling right now, and I can ride this out my body knows what to do the best thing right now is to just breathe and let my body 
do its job, which admittedly I will put the caveat like with what you were saying about IBS and everything, it's harder when you have chronic illness or um, mm-hmm. conditions that get in the way of that. It's much harder to be like, I trust my body. Um, so it's, I would say that works better if you, you know, aren't going through that. Mm-hmm. But even if with all these physical struggles I have, I still do choose to, I have to sit with the discomfort because my digestive issues aren't going to change. They're, they are kind of the way they are. And the only thing that makes them worse is clamming up, getting tense. And there's nothing more painful than doing one of those behaviors. I mean, you really uh-huh. you really can ruin the cycle of your digestion by doing any of those hands, hands handful of things. And oh, I think yeah. that's what motivates me the most is knowing sometimes I just say it's going to hurt more. So let's just stick here. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Like long term, this is going to be I'm going to like regret it. Like and what I won't regret most likely is breathing through it and just like you said, yeah, try to let my body do its thing right now. Uh, Dr. Colleen, you are just an absolute gem. You inspire me so much. Can you please let everyone know where you want them to find you? Because you need more Dr. Colleen in your life. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) They can find me on Instagram at Dr. Colleen Reichman. Or let's see, my website is ColleenReichman.com. I have a Facebook page, but I'm not super active on it. I started a TikTok account. I recently got into that. So cool. Tra- You're cooler than me. I won't eat. I can't even do it. I mean, I feel like it's very hard to make like educational. Like a lot mm-hmm. of my videos are like, I'm like, this is just a joke. Like all I'm doing is joking right. with people and calling it prof- professional, <laughs> but whatever. I'm finding my way with it. So that's Dr. Colleen Reichman and um, yeah. And your Those book. Are- Oh, yeah. And then the, my <laughs> book, which came out in April, Yay. called The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery, advice from two therapists who have been there, that is available through Roteledge, our publisher, or through Amazon. And we will put all of her links in the description. Dr. Colleen, you are just so amazing for taking the time and I will continue to learn from you and feel so connected to you, even if it's just through a screen. Thank you so much. <laughs>